All right, welcome back from your break. And if you're downstairs and going to be returning, I invite you to do so now. And for those here in the sanctuary or streaming with us, open to the Gospel of Luke, the final chapter of Luke's Gospel. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And in just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Each of the four Gospels uh, mention various appearances of our Lord Jesus after His resurrection. Only Luke's Gospel records the scene we're about to read about in what has been called uh, the road to Emmaus. And this particular scene at the end of Luke's gospel took place the afternoon of Easter Sunday. So you may be wondering or asking why return to a chapter in the Bible about Easter Sunday when last Sunday was Easter. And that's a very good question. And the reason is this. The story we're about to read is one of the most dramatic and vivid accounts about Jesus with two of his disciples because we already know that the Lord is risen, but these two disciples, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, do not. And so as we look at the passage together, we already know what these disciples will discover, and that gives us great encouragement both for our lives as Christians, but also for those with whom we love and serve that are on a gospel road. By that I mean a road where they have heard about Jesus. They may have even heard from you or heard from others that he is risen, but do not yet perceive and understand and therefore believe that he is their savior. So let's read the story together, beginning in verse 13, and then consider how Christ, the I am of the resurrection, opened eyes with burning hearts this Easter afternoon. This is God's word, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem to not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, 
mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women have amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Excuse me. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Lord, this particular scene from Luke's gospel describes two ordinary disciples making their way from Jerusalem to a village named Emmaus. And here, Lord, we, knowing that you are risen, discover how they come to know that is true. I pray, Lord, you would encourage our hearts this morning from your word, and you would use this simple passage to invite us to rejoin these disciples on their journey and discover how indeed the I am of the resurrection changed our hearts and continues to change hearts to believe in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Allergies, they are here this morning. 
My outline is simple this morning. If you're taking notes or if you want to follow along, just in terms of how I'm leading us through the passage, it's simple, it's simple and straightforward as this. The disciples were slow to recognize Christ. The scriptures opened their mind to perceive Christ. And the Holy Spirit changed their hearts to believe in Christ. So let's begin by looking at the context. Verse 13 says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. As verse 1 of chapter 4, where this passage finds its home, indicates it's Easter Sunday afternoon when two disciples, two followers of Jesus who had traveled with him to Jerusalem, are returning to a village named Emmaus, some seven miles from the great city. The road to Emmaus, if you can call it that, is not a road like you or I would consider. It's not paved, although it is marked. Uh, Linda has actually told me that she has hiked some of it with her sister Nancy years ago during a tour of uh, Israel uh, and with a Bible teacher uh, named Jamie Buckingham. Uh, it's a dirt path that's wide enough to uh, allow cattle uh, to, to navigate their way uh, down from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. Uh, it's a rocky path at times uh, that saw a lot of foot traffic. So it's not a road, but on this road, two disciples, one whose name we do not know, and one named Cleopas, are making their way slowly to the village of Emmaus. And Luke informs us not only of their destination, but he informs us of their hearts, the state of their soul. He tells us that their hearts were weighed down for the things that had happened. Their steps were weighted with sorrow and sadness for, as they are about to describe to the stranger they meet on the road to Emmaus, they were bewildered and confused over what had taken place that previous Friday. They were saddened and shocked with grief that the one whom they thought and describe as a, a mighty prophet, mighty in word and mighty in deed, and who they believed, who they hoped would be the redeemer of Israel, as they describe later to the stranger they meet, has been crucified, has been killed. Verse 16 indicates that their eyes were kept from recognizing the individual they now meet on the road as they were talking and discussing together these events. It says in verse 15, Jesus himself drew near to these two two disciples, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. It implies that the stranger who asks what they are talking about is not recognized 
to them because their perception of him was delayed by God himself, and it's central to the story. And so they are then stunned in verse 17 by the question this individual asks them as he joins them in their walk and their discussion. What is this, he asks, conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Luke's so attentive to the details, isn't he? It's as if they're shocked by the question, despite their sadness and their confusion, that Cleopas answers them, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And the stranger replies, verse 19, what things? Cleopas responds, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man mighty indeed, and word a prophet, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. It's, if I can use this word, it's ironic, and it is, from the cheap seats, humorous, that the person who experienced the things that happened on Good Friday and fully understands the things that happened on Good Friday and on Easter is being asked and told by one of his disciples, do you not know what happened on Good Friday? He's the only one in the passage who really knows what truly happened on Good Friday. Yet, he interacts with these sad and slow to recognize followers of Christ compassionately, doesn't he? He cares for them. He cares for them by, instead of announcing his resurrection to them, instead of simply revealing himself as the risen Christ of the empty cross, he cares for them by drawing them into a conversation with him and drawing out their despondent hearts by leading them in a Bible study, if you will, about the identity and purpose and promises God had given to his people regarding their Savior. This is a season where many of us, uh, sometimes unwittingly, but often uh, providentially, are drawn into spiritual conversations with people who are either unchurched or formerly part of the church, or not even a believer at all. And there are few, if any, better examples of how we are to engage someone who has questions about Christianity or is confused about the church or, or even has strong opinions otherwise. Jesus, in his humility and in his compassion, cares for these men he does say at one point, understandably, perhaps, oh, foolish ones, 
Remember that when he said that to them? Slow to believe, verse 25, all that the prophets have spoken. These men have been with him for three years, and he has taught them on repeated occasions, no doubt, that the Christ, as is recorded in Luke's and all the Gospels, must suffer and die before entering his exalted glories in order to accomplish God's purposes. So, as a fellow teacher, I sympathize with the frustration, if it's allowed to be that, of Jesus with two men who have been his students for three years who still haven't gotten the lesson that the promised Christ would have to suffer first prior to entering his exalted glories, not only as a resurrected king, but now ascended at the right hand of majesty to accomplish the redemption of Israel. Or perhaps, like many Christians today, and I fall into this trap often, uh, and many unchurched or formerly churched people today, they are selective in the scriptures they choose to focus on when it comes to Christianity. For these original recipients, their study of the scriptures was limited to those passages where the Messiah, the Savior, was a triumphant king who would deliver Israel from Roman tyranny. And so in that theology, there really isn't room for a crucified and suffering king who would need to offer his life in order to liberate his people, not only from tyranny, but the penalty and punishment of sin. But rather than correcting them or even overwhelming them, which would have been my playbook, just show them now, Lord. Show them your glory. I mean, in just a minute, he's going to vanish from their sight. I mean, before there was Frodo and Bilbo and the Lord of the Rings disappearing with rings, Jesus in his resurrected glory vanishes from their sight. Apparently, resurrected bodies have capabilities that we know not of. He patiently and caringly leads them on a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, cross-defining tour of the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures, my second point, and Christ's teaching of them, his interpretation of them, verse 25, opens their minds to perceive Christ. After chiding them in verse 25, he says, was it not necessary, verse 26, that Christ should suffer these things in order to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, so the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, beginning with Genesis, leading through Exodus, which we're currently studying, then going into the law like Leviticus and all the sacrificial systems, then number, in Deuteronomy, he interprets the Scripture working its way through the Psalms and the prophets and how they all concern himself. I don't imagine they're walking on a road. I mean, there is, they don't have iPhones or tablets. They aren't able to take notes 
I don't even know what the topics were that selected, but surely he must mention Genesis 3. And at the very beginning of the story of God in the Bible, we're following the fall, a promised seed, a king is given who will crush the head of the serpent, but will suffer a wound. Or maybe Genesis, is it 22? Where Abraham is called as a test of his faithful obedience to sacrifice the promised son only to have him rescued by a ram that God provides. The Lord will provide. Or certainly when we get to the prophets where we are in our men's study with Isaiah in the stories and prophecies of the suffering servant, a suffering servant, a king who would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes we would be healed. Or maybe even, remember the longest sermon series in the history of this church? Some of you do. The book of Jonah. Remember that? I think we spent three years in that book. Joe Hersey, I was in life group with Joe, would never forgive me for that. Pastor, there's other books in the Bible. And Jonah's one of the shortest of them. He's probably right. But Jesus interprets that short book saying it's primarily about the resurrection. When Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, for three days, it prefigured that one would come that would be raised. Now, is there more to it? Yes, but when Christ says that Jonah <laughs> experience in the belly of the great fish prefigures his resurrection, we need to let him interpret Jonah a little more, right? And less Bauer with a six-year sermon on Jonah. There minds must have been blown away as the Bible that they no doubt were familiar with was being now interpreted by the stranger who they do not recognize, but who's connecting every major shape and contour of it with Christ who was crucified with reports of his resurrection perhaps. And yet, as Luke told us, the eyes of these two people had been deliberately kept from recognizing Jesus until when? Until the scriptures were interpreted. Jesus did not overwhelm them by some spectacular revelation of himself. Instead, he interprets the scripture to them. They need to hear the word of God. They need to have the word of God taught to them and interpreted for them and applied to Christ for them in order to clear up the confusion of their own words. So before, listen, he draws their attention to the miracle of the resurrection, and he will do that as we see in this passage. He directs their attention to Holy Scripture and interprets for them the sufferings of the promised Messiah. Dinsdale Young, who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and who was quoted by several people I was looking at this week, 
says this as he preached this text to his congregation in the 1800s in Great Britain. I would have imagined that the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus would be independent of the Bible. <laughs> so would I. In other words, I would have imagined that the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus would have just revealed his glory right there and said, fellas, it's me. Here's the wounds, but I am raised. He didn't do that. Instead, he came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. He came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. And it changed their minds to now perceive Christ. I'm getting to an application. But this gives me great hope that you do not have to be on the Emmaus road to perceive Christ. But Scripture indicates that whether it be the gathered church on Sunday or when you're alone in your home or on a walk or in your car or in the grocery store or at a workplace, that scripture, when it is opened, is there to help us interpret Christ so that we not only believe that, yes, the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed, but he is present with us to comfort and care and direct us for his glory. See, prior to this moment, Jesus is simply a stranger to them, concealed as he is. But something happens to them when the scriptures are rightly interpreted and they point to Christ. Finally, the passage concludes later as they draw near verse 28 to the village of Emmaus and having really acceded to their demands to stay with him, they have a meal with him, verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, where they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then these two disciples told what had happened on the road and that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. To my final point, the Holy Spirit changed their hearts to believe in Christ. Prior to this moment, Jesus appears to be unrecognizable to them, but something happened to them following the, the Bible study that they had together on the road, and now the breaking of the bread, whether, whether that 
breaking of the bread was the meal itself, or they remembered a previous meal with Jesus. Perhaps they remember the miracle, the feeding of the thousand, or perhaps they remember the Lord's Supper on the last night. And this is an echo. We're not told, but what is clear is that by the work of the Spirit, their eyes were opened to believe in Jesus. It says their hearts burned within them. I view that as they experienced indescribable joy at the revelation that he is, he's bodily raised. He, they, maybe they even observed the scars on his wrists in that moment. But what is true is that Easter light becomes burning fire within their hearts as they not only recognize him, but gasped and stunned, he was with them. Did you notice that he is with two of his disciples that are walking away from Jerusalem? He is with two of his followers who did not understand for three years the most important lesson that was repeated over and over and over and over again as documented by the Gospels, that the Messiah must suffer, suffer inexplicable sufferings before he enters exalted glories. He's with them, and he's with them to care for them. And he is with them to care for them by revealing through his word and through this meal the I am of the resurrection. For those of you that are followers of Christ, do you remember your conversion? I was with a friend yesterday and he reminded me of mine, and I recalled a certain point of it. That was many years ago, and many, many miles have been walked since then. But do you remember yours? Do you remember, do you remember, if not the moment, do you remember the season when it happened and how your perception of Christ changed, but also your heart towards him in some ways inexpressible and in many ways inexplicable to those who knew you best, was filled with love for Christ. Do you remember that? You must have been then on the Emmaus Road. You must have been on the Emmaus Road. Not literally. You must have been on a gospel road. That Christ was traveling. Oh, wait. You were on any old road and Christ, who is a friend of sinners and tax gatherers and gluttons and drunkards, pursued you in order to reveal himself to you. I remember as a Christian when I walked away from him. So weak was my discipleship, so immature my understanding of grace, buried under all sorts of legalisms and the condemnations that quickly followed. I mean, I was a rebel, but the legalistic interpretations I was arriving at from the Bible and perhaps the teaching I was receiving made following Christ just, just too hard, too difficult, and I walked away from him. And I remember there in Avalon, New Jersey, 
didn't know it was the Emmaus Road, standing in front of a church. It was, it was, a, it was a gospel preaching church. And looking at the message on the front sign and seeing the cross, I burst into tears and I never cry. I never cry. I don't even cry when I forget her birthday. I should. <laughs> Why was I crying during senior week when the night before I had had far too many adult beverages and we'd gotten into a fight with the local neighbors? Ah. Jesus, the I am, is the good shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. And some of you know lost sheep. Young men and women who were once apparently walking with him and now feel very lost. Isn't it good to know that the I am of the resurrection, he could have been anywhere, but he's with two disciples who are clearly lost and in confusion and walking away from it all. Their hopes have been dashed. It's so encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you that when you were converted, Christ was there with you, opening your eyes and giving you the perception in your heart to not only believe Him, but the ability to love Him, repenting, yes, of our sins, but more than repentance, loving Him. Oh, how we love you! To be forgiven of our sins and to be free to love you and not love ourselves. I needed that good news. That's the only reason I think I'm still a Christian. It's because the one on the road to Emmaus continues to walk with me and you, interpreting for me the scriptures and pursuing me when I'm confused and revealing that, yes, he's holy, but he is compassionate and merciful and gracious. Because he delights to open eyes and give burning hearts to people who are humble and will respond to him. So I have wonderful news to announce to you today. This is, this is preaching to the choir, but you're on the Emmaus Road and Jesus is with you. And he's calling your and my attention to this passage to not simply say, we should say, the Lord has risen, but the I am of the resurrection is with you. This afternoon when you're home and your living room looks like chaos, tomorrow when you're at work and you don't want to be there, or maybe you do, but you're saying, God, help me in this work situation to be more like Christ. Or you're in a relational difficulty or dilemma. You're on the road, the gospel road. And so it's there that we can cooperate and say, Lord, opening my Bibles, interpret for me again the scriptures and help me. Tell me, know that you are with me but through opened eyes and burning hearts, love you and display you and follow you into this difficult situation. The Lord is risen. And they used to say on Easter, he is risen indeed, which means he is with us. 
the Lord is also with those people that you love that don't know him. That they've heard from you the good news, but they've rejected it. These fellas heard the good news, and they didn't believe it either. And that gives us even more reason to pray for them, yes? And to love them, yes? And to join them on their gospel road, yes? And to be patient with them. And to recognize that like the guy preaching, we're all knuckleheads when it comes to perceiving the stranger in our midst, the Lord. And we can be humble. We can be patient in our evangelism. Because he has been patient and humble and loving towards us. And we can pray for them. And we can ask them to do what he mercifully, graciously did for we, us who are always undeserving. He interpreted the scriptures for us. He opened our hearts through the Holy Spirit to believe in him. And now our hearts burn with love for him. Friends, as the scriptures are read, and although I'm not going to go there, the Lord's Supper is taken. We'll talk about that next week. We are invited to encounter Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Question as we conclude, how does the delayed recognition by the disciples of the risen Christ underscore for you the priority and power of the gospel when it comes to perceiving the risen Christ in your life? How does the delayed recognition of these disciples of the risen Christ underscore the priority and power of the scriptures which point us to the gospel? Well, one way it points me is that in my daily life, what I most need to recognize and see is that Christ is here with me. And so in opening my Bibles and perhaps joining Tuesday prayer or certainly fellowshipping with other Christians in life group or reaching out to a friend via text or some other means, the risen Christ is not reluctant to reveal himself afresh to us. And how does the joyful celebration of these eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Christ encourage our joyful celebration of the Christ of the empty tomb today. Did you see what happened at the end? These two guys from Emmaus go back to Jerusalem, and they've got a testimony to share, but before they can even get it out of their mouths, the disciples who are there interrupt them and say, we've got our own story to share. The Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what they had witnessed as well. As we conclude in the band returns, the gathered church, we have the privilege to join these witnesses in encountering the risen Christ of the empty cross as we celebrate that the I am of the resurrection is not only alive, he is here. Let's pray. Lord, such a simple story, but it brims with hope for each of us wherever we find ourselves. And we pray now, Lord, as, as we cooperate with the Spirit's work, 
that you would, you would help us again understand and perceive the risen Christ is with us. Thank you, Lord, because you are risen. Lord, all of my sins can and are forgiven. Thank you that through your resurrection, this is a public vindication by God himself that your sacrifice for my sins was sufficient. It satisfies your holy justice. And therefore, I can not only be forgiven, but love you again. And thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, which indwells every heart that believes in you, that reminds us that the I am of the resurrection is with us. And through the living word, encourages us to worship him again. Lead us as we continue our journey together on the road you have set before us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's stand.